Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Well, every Friday we do something on the show here. If you're new, if you're not usually with us on Fridays, we do a little thing that we like to call the brightest conversation in Hamilton radio. And that means, as I say, every time we introduce someone, we have to have someone who is bright and conversational and can hold up their end of that mandate. And let me tell you, uh, this is someone I've been wanting to get on for a while now. And, you know, schedules and other things, but um, she is here now. You may know her best, and she may she may take issue with this, I don't know, but you probably know her best from her days on CHCH. But then, you know, there's many other things that she has done since. She's written for The Spectator, and she now writes for The Bay Observer, and she is, I don't even know where else she is, but she's all over the place. Her name is Kathy Renwald. She's in tonight. Have a, thanks for doing this. Sure. Thank you. You didn't tell me I had to be a bright conversationalist. Well, I mean, I, I, we try not to, uh, you know, build up the pressure ahead of time. But, right. um, you know, we've never had someone when, when they say that go, oh, really? I thought I was supposed to come in and just go, oh. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. they've always they've always held their end of it. But, yeah, thanks for yeah. coming in and doing this. Sure, it's fun. Thrilled, thrilled to have you in here. Yep. On, on, did you know that today is National Coffee Day? No, I did not. Today is national. Are you a coffee person? I love coffee. I love coffee. I think I could drink, drink, uh, not drink alcohol, and choose coffee. As that my would only be your trade off. If I had to make a choice, if yeah. you had to make a choice. Yeah. The one thing about National Coffee Day, I saw. Uh, I didn't realize it was National Coffee Day when I woke up this morning. Uh, went to. Uh, we're in the middle of renovations at home, and to the point where I can't even make a coffee at home right now. So I've been going out to a store. They did not even advertise that I saw that it was National Coffee Day, which I thought was a huge opportunity lost for them. Yep, for sure. But I see, I want to I want to ask you about the idea of flavored coffees. I think that flavored, yes, yeah, okay, thumbs down. Kathy's thumbs giving down. me a thumbs down. Yep. It, does any flavored coffee actually taste like the flavor that they say? It smells like it sometimes. Yes. But I don't, I've never tasted a flavored coffee that tastes like anything other than coffee. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, sometimes someone will give you a flavored coffee and you don't realize that's what's coming. And it's like uh, strawberry coffee or something totally <laughs> weird. No, I just like real coffee. And you smell it. I, we, we go yeah. up, there's a place on um, on Wilson Street in Ancaster just by the Walmart. There's a little coffee place that sells like the pots, curing pots and oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the place. If the, Many people will know what I'm talking about. And there's a million different flavors there. And I've bought some of the weirdest, because I always get roped into this. I always think, oh, that'll be delicious. And it just tastes like coffee. Yeah. Um, well, Bananas I, Foster Coffee. And it's like, well, it smells amazing. Tastes like coffee. I took cooking classes uh, many weeks of them when I was younger. And we sat down and they made coffee for us and they put just a little bit of cinnamon in it. And uh, I'd never had that before. Now that I can deal with, but... You know, you go to Starbucks and you're behind somebody that's got some elaborate yes. drink, many different flavors in the coffee. You've Just... been behind my wife, apparently. Oh, gosh. Yes, I can't. My <laughs> wife and daughter love them, hate ordering at Starbucks for them because there's 72 words in each one yeah. that I can never keep track of, nor can the barista person. And I'm my, my coffee order is a grande with a splash of cream. Yeah, simple, simple. right? Simple. Well, Doesn't let have me... to be extra hot or... Nothing. One thing that uh, bugs me at Spar- Starbucks, why do they want to know your name? I'm ordering one cup of coffee, so I always give them well, fake names. Well, you have to have a relationship. I don't. There's something going on there that we're going to regret See, someday. I, I, that could be. See, the one thing I've I've done often with those name things is that if we're if we're going to sit there 
And my wife, of course, her coffee is never like mine, where they just can pour it and give it to you. They have to go through the process. So she will have to come up and retrieve her coffee when they call her name. So I will try and come up with the most ludicrous name possible. So she has to come up and get it when they call it. So she has been La Fonda, and she has been <laughs> Olga, or she has been, I mean, I don't know. What else. I'm sorry, if you're Olga and you're listening, yep. we're not mocking your name, yep. or La Fonda. Um, but the, it's just not her. It's, Maple tree. Whatever I've yep. and 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 I've actually I got to a point when I had to tell the people this isn't her just I'm telling you what I'm doing because you know it was so yeah. stupid. Yeah, uh, but what if you're the only person in there and well, they still ask for your name? It's like that's a good you're, point. You're handing across the counter. That's a very good. I point. don't know. I'm yeah, I'm so suspicious lately of everything. Yes, no, that is you know? that's an excellent point. And again, if you're right, if you're not making some fancy thing, you're just pouring my coffee behind you and directly handing it to me. Yeah. who cares? Yeah. It's a very interesting point. Maybe maybe I should ask them that question next time. Turn it into a, like challenge them. Yep. I don't think they're going to be ready for the I challenge. I would write to the headquarters of Starbucks and say, what's what gives with this? And see if you get a response. That's always fun. So we, back in uh, April, were in BC, uh, had an event to go to in BC, and uh, took the two-hour drive down to Seattle and went to the very first Starbucks at Pike Place Market, which is why the coffee is called Pike Place. But about a 20-minute walk into Seattle, there is something called the Reserve Roastery. And it's this fancy, very hipster, uh, basically just a giant coffee shop with, it looks very um, industrial and everything inside with roasting things. This is where they apparently do all of this, the testing of their products before they go elsewhere in the world. So uh, Frappuccinos, they said, were first tested here for a period of time. And then once it succeeded, anyway, I had their... Uh, and they did ask me my name, um, a coffee, a Starbucks with uh, that was infused with olive oil. <laughs> and it was supposed to be extra smooth. And it was very smooth. It was, you know, it Did it was. affect the ta- taste or? Yeah, I didn't. But the people who I was with tasted it and says, yeah, you can taste the olive oil. That was not the point, though. I, I only had one, which is yeah. good because I came home. <laughs> and when we got home, I saw an article about that particular new thing they're testing, which you've, you'll notice you have not seen it at your, at your Starbucks around here. Apparently, if you have more than one, uh, it causes explosive diarrhea. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. So, yeah, Bad. That's, yeah. why, that's why you test it, I guess, ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, but, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 anyway, on National Coffee Day, I got thinking today, I don't think that there is another drug that is as successful as coffee. I, 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 so I, I know we're, you know, that's, that's looking pretty bleak. I mean, we're talking cocaine and pharmaceuticals and everything else, but yeah. I don't, is there any other drug? Cause caffeine is a drug. Is there any other drug that is as wildly successful? Everybody takes it. And I think the interesting thing is it's rarely discouraged. Like you should never have caffeine. You know, often they list the benefits of caffeine, right. maybe not too much caffeine, but it uh, doesn't get on that bad list like a lot of other things you used to love. No, but so. people will say, I don't drink coffee. But very few people say, oh, I don't use caffeine. Some people will say, yeah. I, don't, I don't drink alcohol. That's fine. Yeah. And you go, okay, you don't drink alcohol. So, no, I've never heard anyone say, oh, I'm an anti-caffeine person. <laughs> they just, I just don't drink coffee. I, I bet don't like you could coffee. find one. I bet you could oh, find one. Oh, I bet one. you could. But yeah. it doesn't have the same cachet as not drinking alcohol or not smoking pot or whatever. Yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. you, no one says, oh, you don't drink, you don't take caffeine. It's just, I don't drink coffee. Nobody wants to know more when you say that. Uh, yeah. So you're, yeah you're, all of a sudden you're a freak. You don't have caffeine? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Kathy, here's, the, you know, there's so many things that have been said about what happened this week with the 
guy that was honored with the standing ovation and all the yep. rest. But one thing that I, I haven't brought up this weekend, it really kind of staggered me, was when, when Anthony Rhoda, the Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. was introducing him, and was introducing him as a man who fought against the Soviets, should nobody have twigged on that and went, wait a second, uh, the Battle of Stalingrad, that was against the Germans. Um, the Siege of Berlin, the, the Soviets were the ones who found Hitler's body when they pushed into Berlin after his suicide. I know that through the 60s and 70s, Russia was the bad guys to us, but back then, we were fighting with the Soviets. They were the good... Should, it just yeah. seems to me like our history. I, this this is a this is a, a flashing red light about not knowing our history. Yes, and not doing homework and research. Have you watched the replays of the clips when that guy was introduced? And I'm watching the faces of the older guys sitting beside him, and there did look to be some question marks on their faces, like really. Mm. And you just have to wonder how many people in that room reacted to that. Well, and, and look, I, I'm going to give a, a break to a degree because, honestly, even though I like to think I know some history, if somebody is introducing this person and everyone else is applauding, even if you hear that, I probably would have doubted myself and went, okay, I must be off. I must be missing something here because everyone else seems to... But nonetheless, I, I just I thought this is... This is the kind of thing that makes me believe we have to do a way better job. I know these people are long out of high school, but we have to do a way better job in school at teaching history and where we come from and the story of how we got here and all the rest. I know a lot of people say, ah, history. Yeah. It's important. Mm -hmm. It's important. Well, I have to say I I have dual citizenship. So I grew up in the U.S. Um, I moved here to Hamilton in 75. But I had no interest in history in high school, uh, and I'm sure a lot of kids are like that, right? It was just I, I, I was good enough to pass, but it's only when I got a bit older that I became interested in it. And but, why? Why well, do you think you know, were not interested? Well, you know, I think some of it is your teacher, obviously. Like, I went to Niagara College. Um, I was out of school for a while. I went to Niagara College, and I took a course called Civilization, and we had two teachers, and the one teacher was the most fantastic person I've ever heard speak about history around the world. And if had I had that person in high school, probably a different story. But you know, you have some teachers that it's, you can tell they're miserable, and they want to get through it. And it just sucks the energy out of the topic. I was, uh, it's funny you say about the teachers, because I was, I was, there was a story this week, and I'm just pulling it up here to, uh, um, so there, there was a story this week from Hadrian's Wall in England where a 16-year-old kid chopped down a very famous ancient tree. Yep. Why they did it, uh, I mean, you know, again, 16-year-olds do stupid stuff just yep. like, you know, other kids do. But, and it, it, that got me thinking this week because I remember in high school, the only thing I remember from high school about Hadrian's Wall was that I had to memorize that it was 1066, Hadrian's Wall. But, yep. but when, you're right, when it's a teacher and all that's expected is that you know the date and the name of the thing to go with it. Who yep. cares? What? Yep. Why do I care about that? It's if you can put it into a context or make it a story or explain well, why. Don't you think that's why Ken Burns documentaries yes. were so popular? Because 
uh, reading letters from the Civil War, that's far more interesting than the date of certain battles. Yes. Did that if you do that in high school, or I had learned that way, I probably would have been had a different view of learning about history. And I'm sure that it's I, I've not taught history to mm-hmm. especially to high school students. I'm sure it's a grind to teach history to high school students who really don't care. Yep. But again, I think that's sort of the tail wagging the dog because I wonder, is it as much of a grind if you make them care, then yeah, yeah. If if it is a story, if it means something, if you can make it relative to what's going on today, or yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I I'm with you. In, in I I love history stuff now, but in high school I could not have cared less. Yeah, well there you go. And now even more so because of people's attention span, kids. On the phone, social media, do you really want to hear somebody drone on about some battle on Lundy's Lane? Uh, It's got to be tough for the teacher. It does. And the answer that I've heard so many times, including from my own kids, and I don't think they were unusual, was, well, like with certain things in math, right? When you would take, you know, sine, cosine, and, uh, you know, whatever, in in math, and it was like, when am I ever going to use this? Well, same in in history. When am I, why do I need to know about Hadrian's Wall? Who cares? Why do I need to know that who was fighting on the Allies or who was? Yeah. You don't really until you do. Yeah. Well, I remember this teacher that I liked at Niagara College. I kind of asked him that, and he said, well, for one thing, you're a better conversationalist if you know about history. Well, that's a different, if you know about it, you can speak about it with that kind of passion and interest. So I thought that's a different answer, really. Uh, does anyone care to, I mean, I, we want to be able to be social, I suppose, but does it, if you, if, is that a selling feature that you can be a better conversationalist? If you're telling someone in high school that, I wouldn't think so. Well, you know, then I have a dim view of conversation in general because most people don't hear anything you say and you end up talking and you can tell they're just, I don't think I'm boring necessarily or that boring, but there's not a lot of good give and take in conversation. There, is, there are videos on social media that people can go look them up and watch, and, and I would encourage you to because, um, A, they're funny, and B, at the same time, they're incredibly sad, and it's people asking kids at universities basic questions. How many states are there in the United States? These are at, at American universities. People in This is not people who are dum-dums, presumably. These are at university. And, uh, 32? Like, no, I, th- these are basic, basic questions. That's and like the Rick Mercer approach, sure, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Where you, you ask the simplest thing and people don't know the answer to it. But I'd be more worried if they went and asked medical students simple questions like, what's the difference between this or that? And where's the femur located? And the guy couldn't answer. Well, that would be, yeah. I, yeah. I think that we, we had someone, we were talking to someone about McMaster uh, uh, Medicine just the other day on the show yeah. here. And I think it's like... 97, 98% to get in there. It's yep. so competitive. I, I'd i be hard-pressed to believe you would have somebody slip through. But clearly, you know, universities, they need students. Mm-hmm. They the, the, It's a big business. You need to keep going. And some of the people who are taking general arts or whatever else, it's like, you know, you got 60? Sure, <laughs> come on. Well, you know, we'll figure something out for You're you. You're welcome. Thanks. Yeah, we'll yeah. find something. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll throw you into gender studies yeah. and we'll come up with something for you. I don't know where you'll use it, but yeah, it's, uh, I just, as I say, this, this, this thing at, in the House of Commons, I, I'm, I'm not throwing too many stones because again, under those circumstances, I could have seen myself doubting what I was hearing and doubting my own mm. 
belief of what I believe to be true. But boy, it really made it seem to me like we have to do more to make sure people understand the stuff. Yeah, and how, and how that could happen is just beyond belief, you know, that that kind of mistake could be made at that level of government and you, other people that must have vetted the uh, introduction, etc. Okay, so that was another thing. We got a, a few seconds here. So I don't believe that Anthony Rota probably wrote that introduction. He had a staff person who did that, who yeah. that's the time when somebody should have went, hold on a second here. Wait, he, he fought against the Russians? That's what, because I, the other thing is go back and watch that clip and it, Maybe I'm looking too deeply into it, but when he says that, you almost see a light bulb go off in Rhoda's head going, wait a second, is, you can't stop there. I didn't see that, but I'd be interested to watch it Go back it again and watch, and, and, yeah. and maybe I'm seeing too much, but it's almost like you can't stop then and go, wait a second, whose side were you on? You can't, you know, you're in the middle of the introduction. Yeah. But I just, some, but surely the person who wrote that should have said, oh, is this right? Maybe we ought to raise a red flag here, but yeah. uh, I think our, our, our knowledge of our own history and the world's history, quite honestly, is uh, weak at yes, best. Yes, yes, yes. Which, which walks us into these problems. Kathy, we, we saw this week in Toronto a press conference, a pretty feisty press conference about the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. Delayed beyond belief, costs soaring, no idea still when it's going to be built when it's going to be finished, just a, a giant mess. Ottawa has, over the last little while, had all kinds of problems with shutdowns. M I mean, multitudinous over since it opened, all kinds of problems. E uh, Calgary, Edmonton, both LRT systems, big problems. Waterloo has run pretty well, mm -hmm. but was finished years behind and overruns in costs. What... Why should we believe, and maybe I'm asking you to answer a rhetorical question because you may not believe it, but why should we believe that with all the problems with LRTs everywhere, ours, if it starts to get built, will be done right? I don't, I hope it doesn't get built. That's my opinion about the LRT for a lot of different reasons, but I agree that you know, with the way some major projects have gone in Hamilton, and this is so complex, uh, I think it will be a long time before it starts and over budget, of course, and m not done on time. I mean, n none of them seem to be, right? Um, and th there's so many things in Hamilton now, when I consider how old I am, I keep saying, well, I'll probably be dead by the time we'll that all happens. Be yeah, we'll all be dead. Children born tomorrow morning may be dead yeah, before LRT yeah. gets built. And to me, that that technology... In, in a city like Hamilton, which is really, you know, that, that east-west route is compressed between the escarpment and the harbor, if things start to go wrong in the LRT line, there are not many options for moving those directions through the city. Uh, I just, it, it's not long enough. Um, in My husband and I were in Houston several years ago, and we rode the LRT there, and not many people on it, and they all said, it's a tourist train. That's, the tourists use it, but we don't. It doesn't go enough places. All right, you just nailed about five different things I want to yeah. talk about. Also, that's good. No, no, it's good. So let, let's go through a few of these. The cost of this, the last cost that we heard was $3.4 billion. Right. I don't know about you. I don't believe that there is a chance in the world that $3.4 billion is the current cost. We don't know what it's going to be. But with inflation and everything being more expensive, is there 
do you think there's a chance it's three point four billion? So I would say five or six. I mean, I don't even know what, but it's going to yeah. be more than that. Well, right? how how old is that estimate now, too? Uh, and three you consider three years, two yeah. years. So at when least. you consider what everybody's saying about all aspects of construction, how everything's gone up, how how could it possibly be? Yeah, and and what is going to be really interesting is if the provincial government, which has said it will, with the federal government, make this happen. If it were to say, we'll make it happen, but we're only putting in $3.4 billion, so you have to adjust your line to fit within $3.4 billion, well, that might get from one end of McMaster to the other. I don't know, at that point. I mean, yeah, yeah. At, is there a point at which you then say, well, it's really, if it only goes from Mac to James Street. Yeah. I mean, I'm not being totally ridiculous yeah. here. I mean, really, is there a, or, or Wellington or whatever, is there a point of that at that point? And it's so inflexible. I mean, I, I can see it working in some places, but consider what, you know, the 2023 going forward, you know, electric, you know, buses, et cetera. It's just on this rigid line where if there's any kind of accident, fire, you're going to, the LRT will stop on the major through route. Uh, it's, to me, it's way too inflexible and kind of an outdated concept. Well, and sticking with cost, we still, and I, I, I was talking to John Best, uh, yeah. who you work with. I was talking with him this week, and, and I expressed earlier, I am blown away by the fact that we are still discussing going ahead and all the plans, and we still don't know what it's going to cost us to operate this. Yeah. It just, it seems to me outrageous that you are planning something. This is not going to be 20 or $30. This is millions and millions of dollars it's going to be, and we are going into this still blind at a time when taxes are going through the roof. I just can't believe that we have not, that council, that someone has not said, hold on, we need to know what this is going to cost us. That hasn't happened. Do you think that's happening behind the scenes, maybe? Maybe, you know, maybe. Um, I, I remember the day, was it McKenna that announced it, Catherine McKenna, uh, and very specifically saying, this money is only for transit. Mm. It was almost like, there was a feeling, well, Hamilton may want to try and use that money for something else because this this might not work. So um, I hope that's still not the case because I'd, I'd like to see that 3.4 go somewhere else, like housing or... There's all know. there's a lot of places it could. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, I won't get into it too much because it's a discussion for another day, although yeah. I think it's an important one about traffic. I think that some of the... Uh, if you go down to the part of uh, the downtown when you're driving on, uh, what street is it where they have the nice metal overhang saying downtown Hamilton. Ferguson. Dr- Ferguson, yep. right around there. Yep. Uh, that apparently is going to have no through traffic. That right. will only be LRT. So all that is going to be diverted onto Main Street for a single lane of westbound traffic or up onto Cannon. Can you imagine now on canon what the left turn onto dundurn street is going to be it's going to be backed up to stone stony creek um there's things about this that i just i think are not well thought through yet of what the impact is going to be i think driving in the city now from 4 p.m onwards those you know uh york boulevard canon uh they're already jammed all the time now i don't know what's changed uh but then you think with that lrt and some some areas where you can't cross it I don't know how this city's going to handle the traffic. I guess, you know, if you're Jason Thorne, city planner, et cetera, uh, they think everybody's going to be using transit, riding a bicycle, uh, that the car is not going to be in existence. Uh, I will respectfully disagree. 
And I'll tell you the reason is it's fine. You know, I know that people have before in this city, not not him, uh, but I've heard people say, well, look, just look at a place like Amsterdam. Okay, let's look at a place like Amsterdam where the bike is king. Amsterdam is a designed as a city far differently than Hamilton is, far differently. Mm-hmm. And you are never going to convince me that great swaths of people living in Waterdown are going to ride their bikes to the downtown. It's yeah. just not feasible. It's not realistic. Same with Stony Creek, Ancaster, Dundas, maybe Dundas, maybe for yeah. some parts of Dundas. But it just, it's unrealistic. The, the scale is so different, right? It's massively Cities different. Cities in North America compared to Europe. You, you know, LRT in Europe, we've been lots of places where it's running and it does make sense and it works well. But here, I mean, people are married to their cars. These still people are unhappy that the lights aren't all synchronized so they can whip through Hamilton as fast as they can. Which, uh, and, and Main Street going two-way at the same time or prior to LRT, that little pinch point around Dundurn going to Westdale, where really there's not many options to go any other route if something goes wrong. I don't know how that's going to work with LRT. My wife and I, our first house when we got married, our first house was on Dundurn Street right near York Boulevard. Yeah. And I look now and I think about with the plans for LRT and how that's going to affect traffic, we might never have been able to get out of our driveway again because yeah. people driving on Dundurn because they've had to get off of King or wherever else, the idea that you're going to have LRT in the middle of King Street, you've got a exit lane to get to Toronto on the highway, an exit lane to get to Brantford on the highway. Yeah, exactly. And then maybe one, la- I mean, it again, I, I don't think people... Whether they love the idea of the LRT or not, I don't think they've thought through the impact this is going to have on traffic in the city. I, I'm almost loath to ask this question because I don't want to be the conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but do you think there are some in the city, whether it's residents or uh, city officials, who are trying to make our roads undrivable to force people into public transit? Um, I, I, I don't think so because they'd have to get the cooperation of a lot of other people in roads let's say you know safety traffic um i I think there's a a big hope that we're headed in that direction Uh, i think there's just a lot of foolish um decisions made about traffic patterns where some stoplights are placed how people now can have their driveway almost at an intersection where that that's Mm. never would have happened before um, but I think that is a very strong focus of this council, like bikes, you know, walking. It's all great, but you have to be a certain kind of person, you know, not 80, probably, fit, not, not having disabilities. Yeah. So uh, I, I think the other rest of the population gets forgotten. It will be very interesting when, if LRT gets built, and I, I still think it will, but I'm less certain now than I was before, just again, we're talking about the costs and everything else. I still yeah. think it will happen, but there are costs that we don't know about yet. And when they come out with their new update, we'll see what that leads to. But whenever that is, whenever right? that yeah. is, uh, I just want to say quickly, yeah. uh, you know, you were talking about it, how, you know, something that happens on the link on the 403, even the Skyway Bridge, how that all impacts the downtown core because people get off, have to mm-hmm. go through the city. One time I was stuck in Dundas trying to get home to the north end. And big accident somewhere, stop and go. I finally made it to Westdale, and then traffic was done. I actually drove into Westdale and took the waterfront trolley 
back to my house. So I thought, now that was kind of fun. You know, I did go to Coots Paradise and I can get home. But I thought, you know, this is just something you have to come to grips with in Hamilton. You know, we started this conversation, and let me go back to where we started it, uh, even though all of this has been great. We started this by saying, what do you think is the reason, if there's a reason, that Hamilton's LRT <laughs> construction and operation will be better than Ottawa, than the Eglinton Crosstown, than Calgary, than Edmonton? Uh, did I say Edmonton twice? Uh, anyway, yeah. I know I said Eglinton. Yeah. Um, what, what would be the reason that we should feel that level of confidence that ours is going to be done better? The answer they would give is twofold, and they have given this. One, we've broken this up into smaller projects, right. so it's not yep. one giant project. And the other is, well, we've learned from these other things. Well, let me just talk about the second one first, and then I want you to jump in. Um, yes, they may have learned, but should they not have learned by Eglinton now? Like, I this think is, you should be terrified by that. You know? Surely, Eglinton, Eglinton is not the first LRT that's been built. Surely these lessons should have been learned before you got to this one. So yeah. that answer doesn't do me any, doesn't give me any comfort. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, what do you think? Do you, do you think that when this thing, assuming this goes ahead, that it will go peachy keen, that it'll be within reason of budget, within reason of time frame? Because we know they'll never hit either of those things. They never mm -hmm. do. But within reason, and then it'll run really well. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think it'll go smoothly. And, you know, I, I suppose you could say that about any city now where LRT is on the table and may get built because it just seems never to go right. Breaking it up into sections to me seems that's going to drag the construction uh, timeline longer than you really want it to be and affect those poor Depends businesses. how they break it up. Yeah, yeah. But it seems to me that, um, you know, I look around at some projects in Hamilton that are so, uh, were so delayed, so behind schedule, and maybe it's no worse than any other city. I just don't see it running smoothly, like, you know, from construction to operation. You hope that they learn from other people's mistakes, but I'm not so sure that they'll learn enough to make it smooth. Let me ask you one more thing about this, and this is not something that has even been brought up. And so, again, I'm, I, I bring this up in a vacuum. Uh, it may be totally unrealistic for anything, but... What do you think would happen with this council? Because it's a new council now that wasn't voting on LRT. If the province said, yeah, you know, I know we've said we'll pay for all this, but we are going to need you to contribute. Waterloo had to pay most, if not all, yeah. of their LRT. What do you think council would do if the province said, we said 3.4, it's now 6 or 5. We can't do all that. We need you to put in $500 million. What do you think they would do? Well, you know, I think there'd be a certain section of council that would say we have to do it. We'll find the money. Let's go. But now now with the talk about the 14% budget increase, just as a, well, not a maintenance budget, really. Um, I, I don't know how in good conscience they could say, yeah, we've got the money to do that. But nothing would surprise me, uh, you know, on the other hand. I don't, I, I don't know how they would say no to it. Yeah. I don't know how they would say no with all the time that's been spent from councils present and past, with all the time spent by city, with all the money spent on it. I, I, I almost feel at this point like it's, you know, the person who sits at the slot machine for hours on end, they're afraid to leave because the next pull will be the one that hits the jackpot. You can't, yeah. I got to make up for what I've lost. Yeah. I, I just don't see that, I think the city would put money in if it came to that. And also studies 
prove that it, that's one of the hardest things to do, to say you were wrong, to take back a promise, uh, that human nature is, no, we've got, we pledged we're going to do it, and it doesn't matter if it's not going to work, we're doing it anyway. Well, one other thing about this, this clearly we've seen in recent days with the green belt thing that mm-hmm. people upset about a broken promise from a government. If the cost of this were to become massively more than we had expected, would people be equally upset at the government if it all of a sudden said, we can't do this anymore? Or would they say, we understand because the cost is so much higher? Well, it depends on, and this has never been, I think, explored, how many residents are really in favor of LRT in Hamilton. You know, they would never sort of agree to any kind of referendum. So we're, we're just going on letters to the editor, what councillors say. I don't know if there's, if you live in Waterdown, you, you want to spend an extra few billion on the LRT. And again, we're talking, uh, we're not, we're, we're throwing things out here that haven't happened yet. But let, again, if it came to the fact where the city had to put money in, mm-hmm. should that spawn a referendum before we would do that? I say so, for sure. Uh, see, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would yeah. agree with that. If all of a sudden the city has to put in money that taxpayers will directly pay for, I mean, we pay for it anyway, because this is this is one of my pet peeves. Whenever we hear the people say, well, we're not paying for this. The province is paying. Yeah, but when the province goes and makes an announcement in Kingston, they say, well, look, the folks in Hamilton are paying for this. And when they do it in Kitchener, they say, well, you're not paying for it. The folks in the, we pay for everyone else's projects so they can pay for ours. And it's not free. It's yeah. not free. We're not getting it for free. No, no. We, we, we like to hear that, that we're not paying for it. We're paying for everybody else's project so that they can then come and hand us a free project. Yeah. But I, I, I would think that if it directly was going to be municipal money at any point, that there would have to be a referendum at that point. Um, a question I have, like, I didn't know we were going to talk about LRT, and um, you didn't know how I felt about it, obviously. So it'd be a different conversation if I was a big proponent of LRT, which would be interesting, too. And and, and I didn't know. Uh, yeah. I had some ideas, but I didn't really know. But no, I, I would even think, here's the thing, I would think that even, we got to run, the proponents yep. of LRT, if such a thing happened, if the cost was to skyrocket, I think even proponents, some, would even say, maybe we should have a referendum if city money has to be spent on this. Mm-hmm. Not if it's going to be the province. If the province still says, we're st- we said so, we're going to do it, be that as it may. But if it was city money that had to be spent, or if it all of a sudden got whittled down to half the length. Yeah, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Then yeah. I, I, you know, I don't, I, mm, I don't know where you go with that. That's, no. a, that's <laughs> a, that's a headache that hopefully, uh, Well, this is why I'm not on council. I don't want to have to have that headache discussion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kathy Renwald is in today. And uh, Kathy, for many of you, will be a familiar face from once upon a time on CHCH. But she also writes for The Spec and she writes for The Bay Observer. And a bunch of other places, and uh, thrilled to have you in. I really appreciate you sticking around and doing this. Thank you. It's been fun. I'm glad I know what's going on in the world. That's why we have you here, see? We, you didn't really know that. Well, <laughs> uh, I know you're pretty plugged in. I read your stuff. And uh, no, it's, uh, you know what? It is, uh, it, there is a lot going on in the world. There's no question. It's yeah. So even if at one point I had asked you something, you said, sorry, what? I would have just chalked <laughs> it up to, yeah, there is an awful lot of stuff that's happening. Yeah, so, uh, I was that's busy that day. The busy that day. I want to talk to you, we got a little while here uh, now, and I want to talk to you because one of, and this, this, this is going to spill into a bunch of different topics this hour. 
But one of the most talked about things in this city recently has been the tiny homes project. It ties into house homelessness, it ties into encampments, it ties into neighborhoods, it ties into threats against counselors and all kinds, I mean, all kinds of things that we're hearing about, but it really all uh, starts with the homeless thing and the idea that the city wants to build with, through HATS, Hamilton Alliance, Alliance of Tiny Homes, Tiny Shelters. shelters. Yep. Otherwise it would be half. Uh, I, I can spell. Um, they want to build this tiny village of tiny homes in the North End. That uh, has been met with great resistance. So you, uh, through the Bay Observer, decided to take it upon yourself to find out how this would work because we are not the first city that is talking about doing this. No. There is one, we were just talking about a moment ago, about LRT, just up the road, Kitchener Waterloo mm-hmm. has done this. So mm-hmm. take take a couple minutes here, and you went and looked at what their tiny homes program was like and how it worked. Yeah, because before, if you don't see where they're situated, somebody can tell you what it's like and where they're located, but it's much better to see it. Uh, another connection is that Hats has often cited a better tent city in Kitchener as kind of a model and who they're learning from. So I first I went to see one of the most recent shelters called, well, it doesn't have a name. It's on Herbs Road in Waterloo. So I drive there, and uh, it's in the middle of cornfields. Mm. Really remote. Not in well, a neighborhood. Not a neighborhood. Not in a neighborhood. So... It's regional land, and on that parcel of land is a big paramedics headquarters. And sorry, th- just to interrupt. This yeah. is not this is not tiny homes. This is an encampment. This is tents. No, this is tiny homes. Oh, this is tiny homes. Tiny okay. homes. Um, and there's a dump there, which I didn't see any evidence of, and I didn't see trucks going in and out. But it's regional land. They put up these steel shelters that are like shipping containers, but a third of the size, in April, and I. In in my story, I included a, the, a shot they gave me, which is an aerial shot of the tiny homes village, and um, people, you know, a lot of reaction to it on Twitter. Well, one of the common reactions was, if you look at this, it looks either like a refugee camp or like a prison, which yeah. it, it it does. It's not attractive. No, it does. Um, so. That was, uh, when I saw on Twitter, there were 58,000 impressions of this story, which people were commenting from the United States. I don't know what clicked with people, but um, so I went, looked at it. Now, I was I didn't make any appointments. So as soon as I parked, people came out of the shelter, a security guard and a woman. And very nice. He said, are you lost? <laughs> I said, no. I said, we're, we've got a tiny shelter proposal in Hamilton. I just wanted to see where this was and what it's like. And the, the worker there, she didn't want me to use her name, but she gave me a lot of information. And um, I wrote a story based on that. And then I also uh, talked to the region, and they sent me tons of information. And I talked to a person named Joe Mancini, who's got a long history in Waterloo with uh, the Working Center, which was an organization started in 1982 to help people find work. Now they're really involved with homeless. So, you know, some of his response, yes, it is out there, but a lot of these people want that. They don't want to be near the people that were their drug suppliers, people mm. that they were in conflict with. 50 people moved in, waiting list of 30. So not everybody wants to be in a downtown core. Um, the second site, a better tent city, once again, it's in what I would call an industrial mall area. So warehouses, truck repair shops, Conestoga Highway, and some government buildings 
maybe 5K from the middle of Kitchener. Um, not fenced like Herbs Road, but there again, placed away from big developments of residential. So let me jump in for a second. There's a lot of stuff that I want to get into here, but yep. um, when you said about it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, but this is what the people want. This is a, this is, so I wrote about this about, oh, let me just pull up the story here. Uh, April 16, 2022. So a year and a yep. half ago. And at the time I talked to HATS coordinator, Tony D'Amato Stortz, yep. who he at that time said this, that they had talked to a whole bunch of the people who were homeless, who were p potential candidates to be in a tiny shelter. And for the exact reasons that you just outlined, he said, yeah, it goes against the orthodoxy, but they don't want to be right downtown. The argument always is they need to be near the services. services. Mm -hmm. Many of them, as he explained, have made it clear, I don't want to be near the temptations that keep dragging me back in. I want to get away. I want to get help. I want to have a house. But if I'm right there, all the things that have kept me struggling yep. are right there. Yeah. And that's the, what they were relaying to me, that people, they don't want the chaos of living in an urban center. Now, people are in the impression, oh, they're forced to live in. They're not forced. I want to live here. Let me, let me have a chance. And only two people have left Herbs Road since it opened. It wasn't for them. But otherwise, they chose to be there. And uh, they do welcome the fact that it's quite managed. There's a fence, no visitors allowed because as Joe Mancini said, that's when the problems start. But Hamilton's program has also said uh, in on uh, Strawn Street that there would be no visitors allowed. Yes. So that's similar. That's not the fence. Yeah. It's the same as what we would have here. Uh, or uh, a better tent city is not fenced and not as supervised. So it's, it's a little more um, lively, let's say. Visitors? Visitors are allowed. Okay. There's no fence. So you can just walk in. Um, and that's a different model. And the one thing Joe Mancini said, he, you know, to me, compared to what we've heard from Hats in the city, they're pretty defensive about everything now. Mancini will admit that there's a lot of problems with this. He said, and, and we understand that residential near a village of shelters, you're seeing sirens, you're hearing sirens, uh, fire trucks, police calls, police visits. He said it gets under, it gets to you mentally as the neighborhood. Uh, so he said, we don't want to be there. We don't want to be in the middle of a place that nobody wants us to be here or they're upset. And we don't want to be on display like Strawn Street would be because it's a pretty small site. Did they give any, so even though there are sirens and such, yeah. did they give any indication that life is improved though? Because the whole concept behind this is that we're going to make life better. Yeah. It's not the chaos of an encampment. Yeah. It, did they give any indication that things are better? Well, when he was describing the chaotic scene, he was speaking more about uh, the Better Tent City, which is not fenced. So there's just, it's not a supervised, and also the shelters in Kitchener, let's say. Uh, Herbs Road, I don't think there's that kind of um, response going in and out of there. They do have, I asked him about the drug use policy. He said, they don't, what you do in your shelter, you do. But he said there is help for people, but not enough help because nobody has enough mm -hmm. help. So um, I don't think that's an issue at that location. But there again, people started emailing me or responding, well, hey, I live near there and this is what's happening. But it's anecdotal. And what were they saying? Well, they were saying the crime rate's gone up, even out in the cornfields. But, you know, how do you verify that? And I asked Mancini, he said, I, we haven't heard reports of that, but maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. 
I mean, it is interesting because there have been suggestions, I don't think formally, I think it's more just anecdotally of people in Hamilton saying, well, maybe we have industrial land where you could put them in yeah. the north end or yeah. like not even the north end, like the north, north end. Or, But the argument always is you're just trying to move the unsightly people out of sight. It's, in, it's just to get rid of a blight. And so yeah. that's always been the criticism that comes back. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? Did you get the sense? No. Uh, you know, the other point he made is n- not a lot of people are offering up land for this use. Certainly not private people. Oh, here's my lot that I'm not using. You can bring the shelters there. So they take what they can get. Uh, Better Tent City has moved three times. This is their third location. It is regional land. Herbs Road, again, regional land. And th- those are the parcels of land that are available. Um, and suit the criteria, as Hatz has said, that, you know, we don't really want to be in the mix. We want to have some privacy. But Strawn Street, there will be no privacy. And it's small enough that when they step out of their shelter, they're going to have to go somewhere to sit at a picnic table, which is going to be another part of Strawn Street. So much different. Um, The people who are living in this tiny village place on Herb Street uh, in Waterloo, Mm -hmm. are they all... Uh, folks from Waterloo, are they on a waiting list? Are they trying to get into this? Is there, a, is there a, a, a demand to get in? Because if there's a demand, it would suggest, even if it's not perfect, the word is out that this is better than the alternative. Yeah, well, uh, definitely. Like They have a waiting list now, uh, 30 people. There's 50 shelters there. He said they all came from tents. So it's not, Hamilton's indicator has it, they're, they have this list that's curated of people that might be better suited to living in this time. Uh, Hats shelter situation, but in Waterloo, it's, you're in a tent. I want to get out of a tent. I'm going to move into a shelter. So that's their clientele. And he, you know, the woman who worked there and spoke to me, she sees changes in people, and she spoke very positively of it. She said, "I've made some friends here, better friends than I have in my other life. Uh, I've seen people improve their mental state." Um, so she was. She spoke about about it very positively. The person you've been referring to that you've been speaking to, Mancini, uh, one of the things, I'm reading your story here, uh, we've learned there are many concerns if you put a shelter directly into a neighborhood. Now, he mentioned before about ambulances or that kind of thing. Uh Beyond that, is is it just an annoyance, if that's the right word to use, or was he saying there were bigger problems than that? Well, uh, you know, it's an annoyance, and um, he did say some other things that uh, were more pointed, like... um, if if you're if you're not in a fenced area and you have a opioid addiction, which he said is the prime problem with a lot of people in these, that you cannot you have to keep the opioid supply coming, and that leads to obviously crime, right? So he you know he said uh, if there's no supportive rehabilitation for people, you're not kicking the habit in a sheltered village, mm. and he said. You know, obviously. Yeah, I, I almost wonder if that, it, it almost sounds like that's not the place for that for the, because of those challenges. When you say fenced, yeah, can they leave? Oh, oh yeah. Like, yeah. So it's not a prison. No, but it's no. not a prison. They don't have to have permission to leave no, or anything. No, it's no, just no. A, the fence is to keep people out, not keep, to keep people in. Keep people in. out, yeah. And, and, you know, they finally have a little home of their own. They don't want to be broken into. So uh, the people go in knowing full well, you know, this is a situation, so the, they can go out at any time. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe they have to be back at a certain time. I'm not sure. But Hats hasn't provided a lot of info. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know if if they did put rules in place. I don't know that. I mean, some people might say, well, why why should there be rules? Why shouldn't there be rules? If you live in student housing, I know it's not the same. Yeah. I know that these are not necessarily students, but if you live in student housing, there would often be a time you have to be back in or there's, I mean, there's in, in condos, they don't have necessarily a time to come and go, but there's rules, there's condominium rules. I don't know that rules are a bad thing. Yeah. And that's, I think why Hamilton Hats has said that they're, they're going to try to pick people that are more suited to a situation where there is structure. But also, I don't think, is there the money there to enforce rules and have security on well, with the fence, there would be. If you've got a fence, if you've got a gate with a security person yeah. who can monitor it, that's yeah. different than if it was wide open. It, you, they still can come and go, which is their right, of course. Yeah. So you're not going to prevent that. I, I think there would be fewer people that that would appeal to, but they may still get you know, fill up the shelters. I don't care that I have to be in by 10. I just don't want to sleep in a tent. And a lot of what Mancini... And I don't want my stuff stolen, yeah, as you said. Like Mancini said, what's the alternative? I, I, You know, I think when you get upset about something, you don't hear the whole story. And he just said, there's no alternative right now. You're in a tent or you're in this temporary shelter situation, tiny shelter village, or those shelters with like you're sleeping in a big room. With, mm. And that's... Nobody wants that. One of the goals of the HATS program, the the tiny village on Strawn Street, if it gets going. And I presume this one is that you're not going to live here forever, that you're going to get into a better situation than a tent, and then you're going to hopefully find work, and then you're going to hopefully better yourself so that you can move out, someone else can move in. Do we know if there's any evidence that that happens? I think... The, the figures I've seen from Kitchener-Waterloo is maybe two or three people have moved on to a different kind of housing. And that's that's difficult because I, maybe I'm misreading this, but I don't think that the idea behind any of these is that it's supposed to be forever housing. No, no. But uh, as people have said to me, there's no such thing as a pilot program. If, if they build something like this and it's working, it's staying. I agree with that, but it doesn't, but the pilot part could be for the individual. Yeah. Just because if, sure. if that thing gets built, the idea hopefully would be that we are helping people get situated and stabilized, that they can then improve their life and move back into, again, I don't know if it's the right word, normal life. Yeah. And then someone else could come in and have that benefit. Well, one of the problems is um, you've got the tent, you've got a tiny shelter, and there is not enough supportive housing for people like this. And it's going to be a while before there is. So that's the big dilemma. And that's where you see people with all their belongings going to Barton Tiffany, which is a pretty mm. harsh site, right? Um, the, the only other thing, or not the only other thing, but yeah. with, with the time we have here. So on Herb Road, the, the tiny shelter village, and again, it, it does from the air. I mean, it does look like a refugee village or a yeah. small prison. It, it does. I mean, yeah. that's, um, but it also looks like there's an awful lot of land around there still. Is there any plan to expand this or have they said this is as much as we can possibly do? Well, considering it just opened in April, I don't think there is any uh, planned. Probably going to monitor this site as well. Um, I do know a better tent city. They just had to go to the region to ask for about 180000 because they don't have enough money to keep running. And last year they had to go for 150000 to extend hydro to some of the tiny homes. So 
um, it's a big expense, and mm. I, I don't see it expand doubling there. You know. Uh, you can read the story that Kathy has written about this. It's at the Bay Observer, bayobserver.ca, and it's a tiny shelter experience not sugar-coated by Waterloo Expert. You can go and uh, give that one a look if you're interested. You can also see the photo uh, photos, but the photo in particular, and you'll see what I mean. It, it, it does look very, it, I mean, it, it looks like a refugee camp or like a prison camp, but it is, I would think, better than tents. The tiny homes discussion, Kathy, as you well know, because you attended the meetings, has led to some angry community meetings. Uh, people pretty enraged because they don't feel the city is listening to them about something that matters to them because it's in their neighborhood and it affects their house prices potentially and safety of their families and all the rest. This has led to the city shutting down meetings, saying it's too dangerous I never, okay, so we had John Paul Danko, Councillor John Paul Danko on here the other day talking about these threats and mm-hmm. last term of council, I wrote about the threats that some councillors had been receiving. I am not going to downplay the fact that councillors have received threats and we don't want something bad to happen to councillors. I do wonder though that at a time when people are angry about a lot of things, does this mean that we're basically not going to be able to have any more public meetings about controversial issues because there's always going to be the possibility somebody could get angry. I I hope that doesn't happen. I, I think that's one of the things that is most distressing about the city's reaction to the last public meeting at Benetto, which to my mind, they set it up in a very bad way. It was going to fail. Uh, they knew how passionate people were about things. And the thing that I can't believe, having been here and as a journalist since 1975, I've never heard the city label a whole neighborhood the way they've la- labeled the North End. You know, aggressive, dangerous, threatening, Kirkendall, Duran neighborhood, any place else. Have you ever heard that since you've been in Hamilton? No, there's people. And, and yeah. I was at the first meeting. I didn't get to the second because I yeah. was on the air here. Yeah. Uh, at the first meeting, there were a couple people who were livid. Yep. And theoretically, there were security there. You could have escorted those people out and allowed, in my mind, allowed the meeting to continue. Uh, you were at the second meeting that didn't get going. Yeah. But from what I heard, there were a few people who were out of control or threatening, or maybe there was some assault. That was one of the words they used. But could you not, with all the police who were there and all the security, could you not have escorted those people out and carried on with the meeting? I wasn't there. You tell me. Well, uh, there were in the gym itself, which was full, and, you know, that was a, a bad setup too because there's an auditorium there that accommodates a lot more people. Two guys at the back, very loud, boisterous. One guy, you know, freedom of speech, free Ukraine, you know, m- might have been hammered. I don't know. And another guy that was loud, boisterous, angry, uh, two people out of a room of 200, and most people sat there on chairs just waiting for the meeting to start, the Q&A. There were like eight, at least eight police officers and that many security guards in the hallway. Why those people didn't come in and escort these two guys out? Now, there may have been other incidents because there were another 200 people waiting outside. That does not add up to me. Yeah, I, my, that, that's my, like, again, my concern is you don't want uh, councillors, whether you like your councillor or don't, whether you like certain city councillors or don't, 
city councilors don't run for office to be threatened or assaulted or have their homes egged or have coffins laid out front of their homes like Fred Eisenberger had last yeah. year, whatever. That stuff is, it, it is insane and ridiculous. That's yeah. not what we're supposed to be about. And I would never w- justify or excuse behavior that would threaten or commit violence against an elected official. That's just, it doesn't, it's not, it's not the way we do things. But I'm also fearful that this becomes the new norm to yes. say, this is a hot button issue. It could get really scary. Therefore, we cannot have this public meeting. That's that's a that's a leap I hope we're not going to take. And the city keeps issuing press releases about this that makes you think that that's where it's headed. I did write to the city today because they keep saying that the meeting was shut down after 20 minutes uh, at Benetto, right? So I, I was in the hallway. I was in the uh, gym. I was in the hallway when Jeanette uh, Smith, city manager, came mm-hmm. and said the meeting's over to people in the hallway, shooting video, 7.55, not 20 past 7. So it was almost an hour before the city called the meeting. And she said, there's a, there's a person inside the gym telling people there that the meeting's over. Then I have video of people walking out at 8 p.m. So the city keeps saying, we, we canceled the meeting in 20 minutes. That's wrong. And I don't know why they're repeating that. So I said, I have the proof. I, I think you should correct that. And also, uh, there was no PA system in there, which nobody can figure out. Like, how was the mayor and Cameron Kretsch going to go in there and answer questions? This, the guy who tried to cancel the meeting for the city couldn't be heard. So a woman from the North End stood up on a chair, said, hey, the meeting's over, and people left, just like that. Walked by, like, lines of security. A lot of people with canes and walkers it didn't look like a dangerous crowd. I know there were people that were kind of out there. But it, it just was like one of the poorest meeting organizations I've ever seen. And just everything collided into being a mess. Right? I, where, where this really becomes concerning to me, um, and again, not talking about the threats or the violence, which yeah. uh, let me just say it one more time because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I'm not, no. I'm not endorsing or excusing that at all. But we have seen times, so this term of council, we've had city council chambers cleared out one time. Brad right. Clark was sitting in as acting mayor and said it was getting too mm-hmm. much. I don't recall if it was because there were threats or because they just wouldn't stop screaming and they couldn't carry on business. I don't remember, but there are lots of examples in recent years where people show up at council angry about some mm-hmm. issue. Yep. Are we now going to say no angry people at council chambers because that's threatening? That that would seem to be something... The, a, the a, trend, right? Well, or or the next logical step on this, which I really hope is not the thing. We need to be able to still have public consultation, public meetings, people still need to be able to exercise their disagreement with something in places where elected officials can hear it. If they hang out, if elected officials only live in a bubble and only hear from the people who like them, which are their workers, their staff, everyone else, oh, you're doing a great job. And yeah, you get emails and yeah, you get angry letters and the odd phone call, but you know, those are just the crazies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, I... um. I think those are the best, you know, not when it gets out of control, but I want to hear what other people think, 
you know, I have my opinions go to any topic in a public meeting, but they've trended towards these, here's a board here, here's a board there, there's somebody who can talk to you. So no, at no time does the public get together in a room and have a microphone and say, this is how I feel or I have this question. So uh, that trend started a while ago, uh, but I think, unfortunately, these latest incidents are going to make it uh, more likely that the city is going to shy away from public meetings, which is terrible. Yeah, I just, I, to me, again, um, based on the number uh, from the photos, from mm-hmm. the number of police and security who were there, yeah. I'm looking at this uh, thinking surely they could have handled if somebody got out of hand. If you can't, if if eight or nine police officers and eight or nine security people can't handle one or two people who are causing a problem, we are not training our police and security well enough. Surely if this was out on the street and somebody was behaving in a way that was threatening, they would have been able to do something. And the interesting thing was the the gym, which was full, somebody came to me and said, something's going on because they're locking the exits, they're locking the washrooms, they're locking all the doors in the building which is a, a thing that could make people panic, right? Like, what's this all about? Mm. But the, the gym exited into a hallway, and those were the hired security guards, which, you know, they're not cops. No. The cops were all behind locked doors at the entrance to Benetto. So there were some of the security guards, they looked worried, which, you know, you never know where the crowd's going to go. So I thought... Same thing, like easily could have been brought under control. And yeah, it, just, not that it was out of control either. I just really hope that this does not become the thing. I just, as I say, I really, I, I, I don't want anybody to be assaulted. I don't want anybody to be targeted. I don't want none of that stuff. And, and that, that, that is truly, that's on the citizens. That's on the residents yep. to behave like adults and responsible people. That That's, that's on everybody. But. If there are one or two lunatics out there who do this stuff, I don't yeah. believe, and I hope that doesn't mean we can't have any more public consultation because those one or two goofballs are going to yeah disrupt know, everything, disrupt everything, and shut it down. But I wonder if those encampment, big encampment meetings during the summer, you know, I didn't, I saw those on online, but I could hear people yelling at those too because uh, it's such a heated issue. There right? have been angry meetings about a lot of things. Yeah. There have yeah. been angry meetings about a lot of things. Uh, uh, no question. There have been angry meetings about a lot of things. Whether uh, whether this is the, the new reality, well, we will uh, we will see. Kathy, let's get to something a little, uh, we've been talking about a lot of really serious things. Uh, are you a fan of The Office, the show The Office? You ever I've watch never the Office? watched it. Okay, so you Next won't know topic. the reference then. That's <laughs> okay. okay. Ben never watches any movies, so Kathy's yeah. no lo- not watching The Office. So there was an episode of The Office where Michael Scott, uh, the, the boss, was driving a car and the GPS told him to turn and he had to follow the GPS even though it didn't make sense and he ended up in a lake. Yeah, yeah. And I thought watching that episode, which was hilarious, but it's like this is kind of ludicrous because you would never just drive into a lake if the GPS told you to. Well, in Connecticut, a DoorDash driver followed his GPS into a lake because he was following the GPS and uh, ended up in a body of water. He was able to escape the vehicle with the delivery order and finish the delivery, which was impressive. But the car had to be fished out and he has now been charged, I guess, for stupid driving? I, I don't even know what the... But, you know, as much as I think this story is just ludicrous because who could possibly do something like this? 
I then thought, I don't know how I ever got anywhere without a GPS. Really? Are, are you now, are you a victim to your GPS that you are reliant on it like I am? I use it all the time, but I have to say, it, it, you know, it's good because you can drive and get directions. But as a passenger, I used to like using maps and getting the bigger picture. So, uh, yeah, I use it, but I, I take it with a grain of salt, too. I just, I mean, I think back to uh, when I was a summer intern at The Spectator. I finished my, this summer of 89. Yeah. Uh, job was done. There were no full-time jobs at that time. It was a recession. So I got in my car and started driving through the States because I had time and I had a bunch of friends down there. And I, but went to CAA and got the triptychs. Remember triptychs? Yeah, yeah. And you would tell them where you were going and you would get these each individual maps that yep. showed what roads were closed and what, uh, and those things were so modern yeah. at the time. Yeah. And now I look and I go, a trip, like just what you say, driving with a map is, seems almost antiquated. I don't, I don't, if you're out there right now and you have a map in your car, <laughs> Even if you even if you haven't used it, if you have a map in your car, send me a text to let me know because I would be hard. I'm hard pressed to believe anyone's even got a map now. We used to always have a map of Ontario in the car. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love maps. That's one of the reasons. Going to Europe a long time ago, France, the Michelin map was the only way you could get around, right, before GPS, and they were very accurate and small roads anywhere that you know you just got a better feel for the country, I think, instead of, they're always getting you on the highway in the major thoroughfares, even if you try to discount that in the direction. So I do think there's an avenue for discovery that you don't get with GPS. Perhaps, perhaps. I, I also know, and my wife and my friends and my kids and everybody would tell you that I am terrible with directions. <laughs> I am terrible with directions. I will pull into a street and then when I go to leave, I can't remember if I turn left or right to get into that street and I'll turn the wrong way. I'm, I'm just, it's, I think I'm not paying attention enough or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But I, uh, just the thought of going back to maps now just seems impossible. It just seems, I, I don't know what I would do without a GPS. Well, when now. I was coming back from Kitchener the other day, I didn't want to take the 401. So I did try to find all the small roads. Use the, use the Google Maps a bit, but then sometimes you just, that looks like an interesting road and you go. I, I love driving like that. Sandra just texted, I have a huge map book of GTHA, two inches thick, she says. that uh, that So so there are people yeah, out there, I yeah. guess, who... But does anyone have... Okay, Sandra, so thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, but does anybody still have one of the big folding maps that when you're driving in the passenger seat, the person has it with arms fully extended trying to... <laughs> Or, and then you have to overfold it the other way and you whittle yeah. it. Yeah, you and try it, gets, to get it. it breaks because oh, you Of course, it. they're all broken. They're all torn. I and think the, and the, the town you want to go to is always on a tear mark. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, before we drove out to Yellowstone a couple of years ago, obviously use Google, but at home we bought the big map of the U.S. because you just get a perspective uh, of where you really are that uh, can't be captured on your phone, Right. It, it, I, I love, I, I do like looking at maps, uh, but now I find I do it online. I'll, oh, uh, I've yeah. got a, tr we're, we're planning a trip, um, in the next little while. It's not I imminent, 
but it's something I'm working on of like, I want to go to Arizona mm. and up to Utah to Monument it's Valley. Beautiful. And I love yeah. it. It's beautiful. And so I've been on the computer on a big monitor yeah. doing the mapping to see. So yeah, that you, you do, it's better than the GPS that way. Yeah. But again, the idea of sitting in the passenger seat, trying to figure out where the heck you are and where you try, I just, I can't, uh, I can't, uh, uh, Dave writes in, I have a 25 year old golden horseshoe map book in my car. Still use it. Gets me most places I need to go. Supplement with Google. So yeah. he's, he's got a map with a Google chaser is what he's saying. <laughs> that, uh, well, I think the, the Google Maps are good for in the city. You're driving and you have to make a bunch of turns in Toronto. I don't, you can't look at a map, right? But big trip like you may be making, I, I do it for your brain. Just turn off the GPS. All right, let me ask you one more thing before we go here. Do you think if you hold, if you're in your car and you had your phone and you had the ma- the GPS on there, and you held your phone. That's against the law. The police yeah. would distract the driving. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you were driving with a map in your hand, an old school folded map, would the police pull you over for distracted driving? I hope so. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> I think if you they have would. to. You have to have the uh, like in rally driving. You have to have the sidekick that reads the map. Yeah, wearing the goggles. Yeah. In the yeah. sidecar with the scarf yeah. and the hat. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, so. You should do it and report back to us. I'll see how that goes. Go for a week. uh, If people saw what size I was, they know I probably wouldn't fit in too many (laughs) sidecars. My knees would be up or behind my head. Uh, We are done for the weekend, but uh, thank you to Kathy Renwald for coming in. You can read her stuff in the Bay Observer, and uh, I always appreciate your uh, your writing and really appreciate coming in and taking the time today. You've been great. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, this will not be the last time you hear Kathy on this show unless uh, unless she absolutely (laughs) refuses. And uh, I'll let you know. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.